a few years back, I was in a dentist office or a doctor's office, and I picked up a, a magazine just to read until I got called into the office, and I read the account of two brothers, Homer and Langley Collier. And I was fascinated by the account, and I wish I could have maybe found the picture that accompanied the article in this magazine. And then I've since seen this, this illustration in MacArthur's book on our sufficiency in Christ. But Homer and Homer Langley Collier, Homer and Langley Collier, were the sons of a, of a very respected New York doctor. And both of these sons had earned college degrees. In fact, Homer, the one son, had studied at Columbia University to become an attorney. An attorney. And when their father, the older Dr. Collier, died in the early part of this last century, so back in, you know, 19, the early parts of that century, his sons, if you will, inherited his family estate. The, the two men were bachelors and at a very young age, because of their father's death, became financially secure. But the Collier brothers, very fascinating article, chose a particular lifestyle not at all consistent with their material status their inheritance gave them. These two brothers went on to live in total seclusion. They boarded up all the windows of their house, and they had padlocked their doors. All their utilities, including water, was shut off, and no one was ever seen coming or going from the house. And from the outside, if you saw this home, it was kind of an apartment-type structure. It appeared empty, and though the Collier family had been quite prominent, almost no one in the New York society remembered Homer and Langley Collier by the time that World War II had ended. But on March 21st, 1947, the police received an anonymous telephone tip that a man had died inside the boarded-up house. And unable, if you can picture this, and I've seen this picture, unable to force their way in through the front door, they entered the house by way of a second-story window. And inside, they found Homer Collier's corpse on a bed. He had died clutching, if you can picture this, the February 22nd, 1920 issue of the Jewish Morning Journal, though they all had known that he had been blind for years. And this macabre scene was set against an equally gross backdrop. The brothers were collectors, and they collected everything, especially junk, And their house was crammed full of broken machinery, auto parts, boxes, appliances, folding chairs, musical instruments, rags, assorted odds and ends, and bundles of old newspapers. They would have been on the modern show Hoarders, if you've seen that. And virtually all of it was worthless. There was an enormous amount mountain of debris that blocked the front door and investigators were forced to continue using the upstairs windows for weeks while excavators worked just to clear a path to the front door. Nearly, the article said, three weeks later, as workmen still were hauling in heaps of refuse away, someone made a grisly discovery. Langley's body was buried, the other brother, beneath a pile of rubbish six feet away from where Homer had died. Langley had been crushed to death in a crude booby trap he had built to protect his precious collection from intruders. And the garbage eventually removed from the Collier household totaled more than 140 tons And no one ever learned why the brothers were stockpiling their pathetic treasure. Homer and Langley Collier made a sad fitting and even a parable for the way that many people in the church live. And although the 
Collier's inheritance was sufficient for all their needs. They lived lives in unnecessary, self-imposed deprivation and neglecting abundant resources that were rightfully theirs to enjoy. Homer and Langley instead turned their home really into a dump and spurning their father's sumptuous legacy, they binged instead on scraps of the world. I mean, can you imagine having all that wealth and living the way that they did? But I couldn't help but think, even that first day that I had read that article, I thought some believers live like that. They have been given a rich, rich legacy, if you will, but they have exchanged, if you will, the true joy in Christ for a cheap imitation that comes from the world. And rather than gleaning on, if you will, the brilliancy of salvation, they forget their high position in Christ. And I don't want us to do that as a church, and I don't want us to do that this morning. So take that Bible and look over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We've been studying there on your notes the pronouncement of the Son of God in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We have broken that pronouncement up, or some people call it the prologue, into three declarations in verses 6 through 13 that call for a response from you to the light of Christ. That's really the essence of it. There's three declarations that call for a response from you this morning to the light of Christ. We're his readers, if you will. We read the gospel, and that is the focus of John the Apostle's text here. Now, we've looked at a couple of those declarations already. I won't take too much time. We looked in 1, 6 through 8 on the witness of John. We saw that there in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came, verse 7, as a witness to bear witness about the light for this purpose that all might believe through him. And so here's the first declaration that John the Apostle makes. It's the witness of John the Baptist to the light of Christ. Then secondly, we looked in verses 9 and 10 regarding the light of Christ. Verse 9 says, He was the true light, which enlightens everyone. He was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Jesus Christ, as we know, we'll see it later in John's gospel, is the light of the world. And so there's the second declaration. The witness of John was to bear witness about the light. And then here, John the Apostle says that Christ was the light which enlightens the world. And then we left off a couple weeks ago on two responses to the light of Christ. There's a couple responses. Look again at verse 10. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now there's the first response. There are those even in our day who reject Christ. He comes into the world. He's the light of the world. He made the world. He is the word of God. All that has come into being in verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing has been made that was made. In him was life and the light was the light of men. But he came and here there are some in that day and in our day who reject Christ. But we left off and that's where I want to pick it up. Not all reject him. And there's the text in 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so there's two responses. Some did not receive him. And positively, on the other hand, some did receive him and some did believe on his name. Now, we said there in that phrasing of to receive, it just means to take hold of, to to grasp something. It's to recognize another's authority. You can listen to the past um, audio on that. But it is to entrust yourself to receive Christ to him and the one who receives him. And then look again in verse 12 who believed in his name. Now, we want to be really clear there that those who believe, secondly, are the ones who receive Christ. 
So the second phrase, if you will, describes the first. And we spent a week on that, on what it means to believe in Christ. And we said there that faith is the noun. And we looked at that a couple weeks ago to have a strong confidence in the person of Christ. It is to trust his whole person, to believe God as he is revealed in this word. It is to surrender your life to him. And so here it is, some do not receive, but others receive and believe, and they surrender their life to him. It is to submit, we said, to the Lord of the universe, to turn away from everything, to turn away from everyone for the pearl of great price. It is a reliance upon a commitment to an obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And again, we said here in the context, of course, To believe in him is that he is the word. Next week, that he is the word made flesh. That he is God, that he is deity, that he made the world, if you will. That we breathe his air, that we walk on his ground. And then you'll note, look, we left off there. We believe in his name. That's who he is. That he, Jesus, the light of the world, is God in the flesh. He's creator of the world. It is to recognize as I mentioned, his deity. Now, to those who believe, look at the status change. Who believed in his name, he gave, verse 12, the right to become children of God. That is a marvelous truth. When you become a believer, when you receive him, when you believe on his name, It says there that he gave the right to become children of God. The truth that is seen here and put on display is that God Almighty adopts us into his family. And that's really what I want to address in our time this morning is adoption, is adoption. Now, there's much to be said here, if you will, in verses 1 down through 18. But you remember last week how we pointed out one of those structures in Proverbs, a chiastic structure? We saw that in the book of Proverbs, and it's not in all places, but there's one right here in the Gospel of John, and I want to show that to you. This, again, is fascinating, and the reason I'm pointing this out to you, you say, Scott, what's a chiastic structure? It is a literary technique, if you will, a literary figure that consists of placing words, ideas, and sentences, and even paragraphs in order to provide emphasis. And what's amazing is what I want you to see here, and you don't want to miss this, is the emphasis of John the Apostle. Because we're only after one thing here at Grace Church. You really don't care what I say. Our whole goal here is to exposit his word. Our whole goal is to make the author's intent emphasized and come to light. Now, what I find interesting here is he opens in the structure with A, the word of God in the beginning. And you can see that was the word and the word was with God. And then it says down on the bottom in verse 18, it says the Father has explained him the word with God even there. B, what we receive through the word is life. Down towards the bottom, what came to being through the word was grace and truth. There's what we call a parallelism there. C, what we receive, or D is John was sent to testify. Look at D is John's testimony in verse 15. He's working towards something. E is the incarnation, is the response of the world. They did not receive him, okay? Look at E is the incarnation, the response, if you will, of the believing community, verse 14. He's moving somewhere. He came in the word and he came into his own, and his own people, verse 11, on F, did not receive him. Look at F, the word in his own, that was who were born not of the flesh and so forth. Then G, those who accept uh, the word, that should say word, not world. And then G, those who believed the word. But I point all this out to you. What is the center point here? The center point here is H, to become the children of God. 
it fascinates me that in John's entire purpose here, it finds its central focus on the verse that we're talking about today, both in 12 and 13. In other words, sometimes there's a ton of truth, there's a ton of trees there, there's a broad forest, but I'm telling you the way that John wrote this, he focuses this in verse 12 to become or to give the right to become the children of God. Again, John is in keeping here with his, entol- his whole purpose, John chapter 20, that says, these things have I written to you that you may believe in the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's our focus this morning, is on verse 12, to become the children of God. And the entire focus of John is to lead his readers to belief in the person of Christ. So let me just talk with you just for a few moments this morning on this vital doctrine of adoption, okay? I'm going to address this issue of adoption. You say, where do you get that? Underline that in your Bible, that those who receive, those who believe in his name, he, and I think that's Christ there, gave the right or has the authority to become the children of God. Let's talk about that aspect of becoming children of God just for a moment. When you just think about adoption, okay, what what is the the act of adoption? Not biblically here just for a moment, but just in our own world. It is the act, we might say, of leaving one's natural family and then entering into the privileges and the responsibilities of another. We have a couple adopting in our own church, David and Aaron Torres. What is that act? They are taking, looking to place that maybe in the next week, maybe tomorrow, maybe Tuesday, the act of one child who will be placed from their natural family and enter into the privileges and the responsibilities of another family. But biblically, though, it's very important for you. And the reason I think we ought to just take a moment here is I don't want us living like the Collier brothers. They've got riches, and they don't understand what's in their possession. And so they forfeited what was theirs by their father and lived, if you will, in a, in a dump-like fashion. And I want to make sure that we understand what God does in when we receive and believe him. He makes us his children. Biblically, adoption is an act of God the Father, okay? God the Father, where he graciously adopts believers in Christ into his spiritual family and grants them all the privileges of heirship. That's that's what I would say it is. God the Father graciously adopting us in Christ into his family and granting to us all the privileges of heirship. Now, this is a very rich word when it says that he became, that he gave us the right to become children of God. Let me just see if I could take a moment to explain this to you because uh, we're never here just for, um, just to talk about the Bible. I want you to understand the Bible. I, I want to understand the Bible. When you look at the doctrine of salvation, it's really just a rich, rich term. Obviously, we think of the forgiveness of sins, but so many different things are happening in the doctrine of salvation. Let me just highlight a few of them, and we don't have to go too far here. You've got the doctrine of regeneration. When God saves a man, when he saves a woman, God is acting on that person, taking them from a child of wrath to making them a child of God, to taking a heart of stone, to making that heart soft. It's the doctrine of regeneration. We'll get to that in John chapter 3 in Nicodemus. But one of the things that happens when we get saved is we're regenerated. Another thing that happens when we get saved, and we've talked about this, is you are justified. In that moment of coming to Christ, when he causes your heart to be regenerated, when he gives you new life, in that moment, he justifies you. It's a legal term, and we talked about that a few weeks ago, where he declares you righteous. He gives you a new legal standing. You went from being dead in your trespasses and sins to being forgiven, to being accepted before him. 
And we said that that declaration is yours for the rest of your life. He justifies you. He doesn't partly justify you. He wholly justifies you and makes you right before his presence. But that's not adoption. These are just applications of redemption. In adoption, okay, God legally, if you will, makes us his members of his family. But it goes beyond legality to establish with you, when you come to Christ, an intimate, personal relationship with God the Father. Listen, beloved, when he redeems you, he regenerated. When he redeems you, he justified you. But listen, one of the other glories of salvation is he puts you into his very own family where you could now call God your father. And in adoption, we are given intimacy. We are given many of the greatest blessings that we will know for all eternity. Now, let me just make a connection for you here. It's the connection of adoption with the subject of faith or belief, as we addressed two weeks ago. The New Testament connects adoption with saving faith. In other words, in response to trusting Christ, God has adopted you into his family. In fact, Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3.23, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the reality is, is you now become, you've heard that phrase, a son of God. John writes here that all who have received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And these two verses make it clear that adoption, if you will, and I'm splitting hairs here, um, follows conversion, and it is God's response to our faith. R.C. Sproul put it this way, and I'm just saying this for you. Are you one of his children? Sproul said it this way. He said, nobody is born into this world a child of the family of God. He said, we are born as children of wrath. He said, the only way that we enter into the family of God is by adoption, and that adoption occurs when we are united to God's only begotten Son by faith. He said, when by faith we are united with Christ, we are then adopted into that family to whom Christ, Sproul said, is the firstborn. And so that link is made when you come to Christ. Now, let me just point out, it's there on your notes, just a few of the features of this truth of adoption. I don't want to take us too far off, but I don't want you just to skip over that. Who is the author of our adoption? The author of our adoption. It is none other than God the Father. God the Father. Look over in Ephesians just for a moment. Turning your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to keep flipping you back and forth a little bit. We want to build this doctrine out. But the author of our adoption is God the Father. I think we're aware of that in 1.4 when it's talking about God the Father in 1.3 of Ephesians, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And now this, in love, he predestined us for, what does it say? Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. There you have it, before this world began before you were born, before your parents were born, before the world began. I want you to know that God the Father determined beforehand that you would be his children. Listen, if you're in Christ this morning, I don't know what your past might be, what kind of family you might have grown up in, but all I know is this new status in Christ places you as a child of God. And I want you to know that God the Father's love was so great that before the world began in love, he predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his own, the purpose of his will. It's amazing what he's done for us. 
You're in his family. I want you to walk out this morning recognizing that, listen, if you've received him, if you've believed on him, he gave you the right to be called a child of God. God the Father marched you out before the foundation of the world. Look over in 1 John just for a moment. I think you remember that when we were teaching through that a couple years ago when John the Apostle, same writer, said this over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He said, see what kind of love, in other words, it's a glorious love. It's an incomprehensible love. See what kind of love, 1 John 3, 1, that the Father has given to us that we should be called the what? The children of God, and so we are. John was so overwhelmed by God's love. God's love is so amazing that we cannot fathom it, that we cannot comprehend, if you will, the fullness of it. But he said there that we are called the children of God. And then look what John says there. And so we are. It's an incredible love. That love was given to us in 1 John. That love in another translation was lavished upon us. Lavished upon us by God the Father. Look at 1 John 3, 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. This is an incredible blessing. It's not regeneration. It's not justification. It's not glorification at the end. It's called adoption. So listen, any of you who have some kind of past life and some kind of, you know, vault memory that I've been reading about in some manuals where people are instructed to go back to things that happened in their childhood, the scripture points us forward. The scripture would tell you this morning that you, if you've received him and have believed on him, that God the Father had already predestined you before the world to begin, begin to be his child. That's the author of our adoption. Look at secondly, the guarantor of our adoption. Now that is a word, the guarantor. It's just the, it's just the ideal of the someone who, who has the authority to give the guarantee. But look back in 1 John, or excuse me, John. Let me show you who is the guarantor of that. And I love this phrase. I just didn't want to skip it. We'll come back to it again. And I knew we had new members today, but I just... I got going on my study, and I, it's a marvelous truth, and it's at the center point of the structure of the whole text. But look back in John, in one twelve, it says, All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He there is the person of Christ. He is the guarantor, if you will, of our adoption. It is Christ. He gave the right, or the other idea, you might even be holding a translation, that he has the authority. In other words, the one who secures that, the one who guarantees that, God the Father called you, God the Father predestined you, Jesus Christ is the one with the authority to make you his child. You say, well, what kind of authority does he have? Well, look over again. We'll get to this. Look over in John 5. Let me point some of this out to you. You want to make sure that you're aware of these statements. In John chapter 5, it says in verse 26, As the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27, And he, God the Father, has given him, Christ, authority to execute, what? Judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Listen, beloved, the Bible clearly teaches there are not many ways that lead to God. There is only one path, John 14, 6. And not only is there one path to God, in John 5, 27, I'm reading it to you there, is he gave, God the Father gave the authority to execute judgment upon the world. That's the authority of Jesus Christ. In fact, look over at John chapter 10 for a moment. John chapter 10, there's these reference points here to his authority. In that great discussion of the good shepherd, you remember that Jesus said this um, in 1018, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And then he said, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. 
Jesus Christ had the authority to take up his life. He had his authority to lay his life down. In fact, look over at John chapter 17, verse 2. There again, he speaks of this kind of authority. He says in 17.1, Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse 2, an amazing statement. Since you have given him authority over all, what? Flesh to give eternal, what? Life. He has authority over all flesh to give eternal life. So here, he is the guarantor, if you will, of salvation. In fact, let me just show you one more. Go over to John chapter 19. There is authority has been given again. And I love this because we were standing in Israel, and Pilate said to him, and I'm in 1910, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that, Pilate said in 1910, I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from what? Above. In other words, he has authority over all human decisions. Now go back to John chapter 1. You say, Scott, what's the point? Listen, Jesus Christ guarantees your adoption by his own, what? Authority. So God the Father has chosen you. He's made you a child of God, and the guarantor of that authority is Jesus Christ. They tell us within military history that on one of the military campaigns of the Emperor Napoleon, Napoleon had dropped the reins of his horse in order to read papers. And his horse kind of nearly reared up and nearly unseated him. I don't think that's going to happen at the rodeo this weekend. But anyways, it almost did with Napoleon, okay? And a corporal of the grenadiers, a very lowly soldier, leaped forward and caught the bridle, if you will, of the emperor's horse so that in a few seconds he had brought that animal under control. And Napoleon turned to the corporal and he said, Thank you, Captain. Of what company, sire? asked the soldier who had just been called a captain. Of my guards, answered Napoleon. And in an instant, the young man threw aside his musket and walked across the field toward the headquarters of the general's staff, tearing off his corporal stripes as he went. He took his place among the emperor's officers. And someone asked what he was doing. He replied that he was a captain of the guards. By whose authority, they asked him. He said, by the authority of the emperor, said that young soldier. You see, it all depends on the authority of the commander involved. I mean, if one of the soldier's friends had called him a captain, the two other corporals might have had a good laugh together, and that would have been all. But the title bestowed by a friend would have meant nothing. However, when the emperor gave the order, the corporal seized upon it instantly, and he was received as a captain by the staff. Listen, in the same way, our position before God as God's children depends, listen, beloved, on the highest authority in the universe the authority of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whom every knee shall bow. And this is one of the reasons why we believe and so teach the Scripture. You can't lose your salvation. I mean, how do you lose it when it's already yours? When you become regenerated, you're born anew. When you become justified, he declared you righteous. When you've become adopted into his family, you could never become unadopted. You're part of the family of God based on the authority of Jesus Christ. But what's amazing in this, you've got not only God the Father who's predestined you, Jesus Christ who gave you the right to become the child of God, but you have thirdly here in your notes the Spirit's role in adoption. You say, what's the Spirit's role in adoption? Well, look over to the book of Galatians just for a moment. Let me show you this. And you've seen some of these marvelous statements before. It is the Spirit's role 
if you will, to witness this truth of adoption in our hearts. And what you clearly find in Galatians chapter 4 is you've got not only here the Spirit's role, but you have all the triune God at work. But Because look what it says in Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, there's that familiar family term. God has sent, watch this, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, if you will, of his Son into our hearts, crying, what? Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And so here, all of the triune God is at work. God the Father places you into his family. He's the author. Jesus Christ has the authority to make you his child. The Holy Spirit is in your heart witnessing to the truth that you indeed are a child of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit by which he bears witness with our spirit to assure us that we are God's family. The Spirit gives assurance to our hearts. It is just a precious, precious truth. Let me just show you one other one. Look over in Romans just for a second. In Romans, it goes into that great truth there. In Romans chapter 8... Just touching on this, and I'm illustrating here biblically the Spirit's role in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, and then this phrase again, that's phrase of adoption, are the sons of God. In other words, people who are truly regenerated don't live in the flesh. They're led by the Spirit of God, which is the fruit of the Spirit, and fruit not only in attitude, but in actions, if you will. So he says there in 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And then this, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, what? Abba, Father. What a great truth. The Spirit of God is working that truth in the inner witness of our heart. So adoption then, Grace Church of the Valley, is the work of a triune God in the application of of salvation into the life of a believer. There, if I could just take you to a fourth principle, look back in John chapter 1 is the gift of our adoption. I don't think I need to establish this too much. It's right there in verse 12 when it says, all who did receive him and believed in his name, he, and then it says this, gave the rights. In other words, he adopted you into his family as a gift. The scripture would tell us that before Christ, we were without hope. Before Christ, we were alienated from God. Before Christ, we were children of wrath. But God initiates. God, if you will, motivated by the magnanimous love that he has, gives mercy to us in the gift of adoption as an expression of his grace. And so it is a gift given to us. And then finally, number five there is the blessings of our adoption. It is just one of the greatest things to be a child of God. I don't have time to to unpack this, but you think about how now we relate to God is not not in fear in the sense that we're afraid of his judgment, but we relate to him as a father. You just think of the blessing, no matter what difficulty you may even have, that when you come into the family of God, you could now pray to God in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and it begins this way, Our Father who art where? In heaven. But it always stuns me there that you as a child of God can come right into his presence. And the first thing the Lord taught his disciples is the fatherhood of God. That as you come to him in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your confusion at times, you could come right into the presence of God and say, Our Father, who who art in heaven. I'm thinking of Paul in Galatians in 4.7 when he says we're no longer slaves to our sin. We're sons of God. And we now relate to God, not as a slave relates to a slave master, but as a child relates to his or her father. What a precious truth. 
We are heirs of God, heirs of Christ, Romans 8, 17. These blessings are ours now, and they are ours forevermore. What a great truth. You know, you think of those truths in the New Testament where God is called our Father. Did you know that only, I think it's about 14 times in the Old Testament, God was addressed as a father. And even the times that he was addressed as a father, they're somewhat removed from intimacy. In fact, I would tell you that in all of the Hebrew Bible, there's one or two times where the term father is used in reference to personal intimacy. But when you come to the New Testament and when you've become regenerated and when you've become justified and when you are now adopted into his family, you, beloved, have the right and the privilege to run into his presence so that you could cry out with Romans 8, Abba, Father. It is an incredible term of endearment to us. You say, well, what does that mean practically on the blessings as it relates to the Father? Well, I just think a number of things. Number one, he understands. He understands as a father, as a father would have compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Because it says there in Psalm 103, for he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are but dust. And so just as a father would have compassion on his children, the Lord has compassion of us. And so secondly, I'd say he takes care of our needs. I'm thinking of Matthew 6, for the Gentiles seek all these things. Remember that? But your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Listen, as you think about your life in this world as a child, you don't have to be like the Gentiles who repeat their prayers and who ask for all things externally, he says, your father takes care of all your needs. Do you remember when Jesus said, look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. This is an incredible change for us. I'm thinking of uh, Matthew 7, where God gives us many good gifts. And remember, Jesus said, if you then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I mean, this is incredible. He gives us that blessing in prayer. He understands our needs. He takes care of our needs. He gives us many good gifts. We have a heavenly father. And beside all of that, all that he owns, we own. We have an inheritance that Peter said, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, we understand that we're in these bodies and we groan. Paul said in Romans 8, for the redemption of our bodies where we'll become complete. But if you have received Christ, if you have believed Christ, he gave this wonderful gift to you. It is yours. You are adopted into his family. Now look there what he says to finish that in verse 13. He wants to be very clear here. Who were born, and he's talking about being born again, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here, he just wants to make it doubly clear. You've got people who receive him. You've got people who believed on him. And I find this fascinating because here's one of John's antinomies in his gospel. What do you mean by an antinomy? Where there's two truths and they're both true. On the one hand, you've got some who did not receive him, who did not believe in him. He came into his own, but his own rejected him. But on the other hand, you've got a group of people who receive him. You've got a group of people who believe him. And there's a little bit of an antinomy there. Because on one hand, he comes into the world and he brings everybody to a fork in the road of either reception or rejection. But here he wants to be very clear that God is sovereign in this salvation. He says, you're not born of blood. And what he means there in verse 13 is you're not born again by your family. You're not born again by your national pride. You're not born again, if, if you're being real specific, by a blood relationship. This is the ideal of a heritage or a race. Here, John says it's irrelevant to the new birth. The Jews, you remember, will get there in John 8, thought that they were children of God because they were descendants of Abraham. 
No, he wants to say you're not a child of God by your bloodline, if you will. Paul, you remember before he was saved, was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He thought that status would bring him into Christ, and it won't. You're not saved by your blood relationship. You are not born into the kingdom of God by your blood. You are not born into the kingdom of God by your parents. You are not born into the kingdom of God by your grandparents and so forth. You're not born into the kingdom of God because you're part of this church. That's why we preach the gospel at Kids Fest. That's why you want to do everything you can to get your children to hear the message that will be articulated both to the adults, but even to your children. So he says, number one, you're not born by physical birth, physical birth. Secondly, you're not born by human decision. Look at verse 13. It says here, nor of the will of flesh. It could be that the writer's talking just about procreation there of a husband and wife. It could be that. You're not born by blood, but you're not born by the will of the flesh of a couple who wants to have children spiritually, he's saying, if you will. But it could be that he's just saying here, you're not born by human decision. You're not born by your own choice. You're not born again by your own free will. You're not born again by your own strength. In fact, he adds to it, look at thirdly, man's decision. It's interesting that he says there, nor of the will of man. And the Greek word there is for man. And it literally could be you're not born again by any male human being. And it could be talking about procreation again, okay? But it could just mean a general term there that no father figure can place you into the covenant by sheer willpower, at least not for salvation. In other words here, you're not born, if you will, by your own decision, by the will of man. In other words, you can have values, you can work hard, you can live ethically, you can morally serve, you can be faithful, but this will not redeem you. And so John says, well, then how are you redeemed? Look, finally, he says, nor the will of man, but of what? God. You're supernaturally brought into the kingdom of God by a sovereign work of his grace in calling a sinner. And we'll look at that more, of course, in John chapter 3. But you have this antinomy here. You say, why an antinomy? It's as many as received him. To all who would believe on his name. He gave the right to become children of God. But be very clear, you're not born of your own decision, your own family, your own sheer willpower. You're born by a, a sovereign initiative of a sovereign God and he deserves all the praise and all the glory. You say, but Scott, then how do I become a child of God? That's the question. Well, the writer Hebrews say it, says, without faith, it is impossible to what? To please God. You've got to come to him by faith. Paul said in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. You've got to come to a saving relationship to him. So anyone then who receives, and anyone who believes in Jesus is born of God and is adopted into his own family. Look at John just for a moment over at 3.16. You know that by heart, and we're all done here. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? eternal life. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not, what? Condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So listen, beloved, put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you do, he will adopt you into his family. Look at John three thirty-six. Whoever believes in the Son has, what? eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So I just finished by saying this. What's your response to the light of Christ this morning? Have you come to him as the pearl of great price and would willingly part with everything you hold dear to gain the gospel? Have you seen Christ as the hidden treasure in the field? Students, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Children, have you believed and repented on the Lord Jesus Christ? Mothers, 
Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you haven't, you may do so right now. You may do so right now. Men, fathers, grandfathers, young men, have you received and believed on him, the only one who can bring salvation? You say, Scott, I, I, I want to be a child of God. You say, but how? By receiving and believing in his name, his person, his deity, his character revealed, you will be given the hope of eternal life. That's our deepest prayer for you, that you would know Christ. You parents, make sure you're pouring this in to your children. Make sure you're pouring this into junior high. Make sure you're pouring this into them as high schoolers. I can't save them. You can't save them. They have to be able to look away from themselves and place it in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the message. Listen, you're a child of God. You ought to walk out and say, I'm a child of God. You ought to know your position. You ought to know the change of your status. You ought to ever be walking in the reality that every single day you live, he called you out. And in ways that you can't understand and I can't understand, he had Scott Artavanus in his mind before he said, let there be lights. If you're a child of God, he predestined you to adoptions, adoption. And Jesus said that no one will snatch you out of my father's what? Hand. You can't be in. He can't erase you, if you will, from the name, uh, from the Lamb's book of life if you're in him. Listen, rejoice in that truth. Don't be like those brothers who had every worldly legacy given to them and squandered their rich physical heritage and lived, if you will, as though they owned nothing. I think you could be in Christ and even be genuinely saved and walk around in fear all your life. Walk around guilty even though he justified you. Walk around and feel like you're a second-class citizen even though he made you a child of the king. You could walk around just wondering if you've ever made it all, if you've ever done it all right, if you've ever pleased him in all the way, and then all of a sudden you take your eyes off Christ and you forget your position that you're his child. You're his son or daughter in the faith, and he puts you into the family of God, and he puts you into the family of God even in his own sovereignty before you were even had a, had a word, a breath in this world. Isn't he good? Listen, that's just one of the features of the doctrine of salvation. And if you don't know him, then do so now. Repent of your sin and put your hope and trust in Christ. 